You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. While you're doing that, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to the end of the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Asking that the Lord doesn't pass us. The good news of the gospel is that he will never will. He never will. Listen, this is uh, the last sermon in a series entitled Follow, and we've been going through the book of 1 Peter with a simple question. What does it look like? What does it look like to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ? And what we have seen through the various chapters and verses is that a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, for all the many things that we can say, all the many ways in which we can define a Christian, a disciple of Jesus is someone who knows Christ relationally, knows him through worship, public worship, private worship, through community. Um, but also, doesn't just know Christ, but also shows Christ. Shows Christ through things like character, mission, calling, community. And that we do that, we know Christ and show Christ, not through uh, uh, creed or effort, but through gospel renewal, through a continual cycle of repentance and faith, of consistently coming back to the truths of the gospel. The gospel is not just the way to be reconciled to God, but a way to grow in that reconciliation. And so this is the last sermon in a series in which we look at these things. In two weeks, we're going to be starting a series on the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Meaningless, looking at how we, uh, we often as humans take good things and seek to draw our meaning from them, and how when we do that, they become meaningless, but how through Christ, all good things become full of meaning through Him. But today, we look one last time at First Peter and see what it means to follow Christ through resistance. If you have your place in the Scriptures in First uh, Peter, Peter 5 or in your order of worship, um, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. We're going to be reading, I'm just going to read uh, verses 6 through 11. I know there's a greeting at the end. I am aware of that. Uh, however, just to cease from confusion because we're only going to go, we're only going to preach on those five verses. So let's hear the Word of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to this time, uh, we don't need to ask you to be present. You are present. You're the one who called us here. You called us into worship, and we have simply responded. We have heard your word read. We have prayed to you. We have, we have responded with the gifts that you've given us, both in song and in offering and giving. Now, Lord, we just ask that you would open our hearts, preach your gospel to us. Let the cross come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall 
into the background. Let your name be made great. Make yourself famous in our midst this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. I suppose that one could say that I am a jogger. By that, I do mean I run about four days a week, like four miles at a time, but uh, would not even consider myself a hobbyist when it comes to running. I do it strictly for exercise or more apt. I do it so I feel like I can eat whatever I want. Uh, Let me be honest. Uh, The funny thing about running is that even if you run the same course, which I do, um, with the same person, which I do, every run ends up being different. Uh, There are times when I'm running and I feel great. There are other times when it feels as if someone has tied weights to my feet or sucked all the energy out of me, even though I just got a good six to eight hours of sleep. And then, of course, there's the general angst and pain that comes because my, my particular course around the city ends running up this hill that runs behind the church to get back to my house, which it, it's really not that tall, but it feels that tall, but runs up this hill to get back to my house that way. Um, that, that is, of course, certainly this hill, the resistance that I expect. But the other one I never see coming. That feeling of I can't pick up my feet to go to the next step. I can't. I can't seem to get my wind. What, what's going to happen? And the questions always come when that, when that feeling hits. Do I stop? Do I slow down? Do I cut it short? That's always the one. We'll just cut it short this time. We'll just get just a little bit further and then we'll stop. What will we do with resistance when we can't pretend it isn't there? Interestingly enough, that's what Peter's addressing this morning. How do we follow Jesus in light of the fact that we do face resistance, a very real resistance that we feel throughout life? That's what we're looking at this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look in three ways. I know that's shocking to some of you, but we're going to look in three ways. We're going to look at trouble in the now. We're going to look at hope of the not yet. And then finally, we're going to navigate the tension together. Okay? Let's start with troubles in the now. But before we get there, it is our last sermon in the series, right? It might be helpful to review a little context. That Peter is writing to a collection of churches, not just in one city, but in a bunch of cities throughout what we would now call Turkey. Asia Minor is what they called it. It's a circular letter, meaning it's supposed to travel between cities. And even within those cities, what we would call the church was a collection of folks who met in different households, different houses throughout the town, and uh, this would have been distributed to them. So we're talking about a lot of people. And he's addressing these Christians at the beginning of his letter as exiles. Exiles, which harkens back to the prophet Jeremiah, who in in, uh, Jeremiah 29 is writing a letter to Israelites who had been literally taken into exile, forcefully removed from their homeland into Babylon. Um, and, it, and God tells those exiles through Jeremiah to seek the flourishing of the city they're taken into, which, by the way, was the capital of the enemies of God. Seek its flourishing. And throughout the letter, he's encouraging these Christians to follow Jesus in a world in which they increasingly feel like strangers and aliens. They don't belong. They don't belong here. But at the same time, a world which they know is actually under the kingship of the Messiah that they follow, Jesus. He's talked about suffering that is likely to happen. He's talked about it over and over again. And now he begins to turn his attention towards the source of these things. But before he does that, he turns his attention to God's mighty hand. Look down at verses 6 and 7. He says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in time you might be lifted up. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Now stop there. It is interesting that Peter begins this talk, uh, this, this section where in which he's finishing out his letter and he wants to talk about resistance, and he does so by starting 
with this concept of God, uh, God's mighty hand, it's interesting, but it's also informative. Because remember, and we can forget this, especially as Christians today, the New Testament was not written as a theological textbook. It's not written as an answer book. They're like, okay, well, I have questions about this, this, and this, and you go and you find your little answer, so now you feel smarter than everybody else. The New Testament is a collection of pastoral letters, which means it was written from, uh, by, by people who saw themselves as shepherds of God's people to God's people, to churches with real problems. Real problems. So why does Peter start this last section with encouragement? Well, think with me. Peter is about to talk about resistance to following Jesus. And the people during Peter's day aren't any different than people today, than you and me. Which means that, you, you know this, when we encounter resistance, what do we think? We think, something ain't right. Something's not right. Something is wrong. And throughout this passage, Peter consistently heads off our common thoughts when resistance arises. For instance, when our circumstances suddenly change, right, uh, to something we don't like. Uh, we lose our job. Our car breaks down. Our friends turn, our, turn their backs on us. Things just don't go our way. Many of us begin with the idea that God doesn't know what he's doing. Clearly, he has got, something is not right, and he does not know what he's doing. That we could work this thing out better. That clearly he doesn't get what is good for us. Peter's answer, is, as that, those thoughts begin to seep into the heads of those who are listening, is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, to some of us, we hear humble yourself, and that, that is in itself um, problematic. And then the mighty hand of God just sounds like, great, here's another uh, deity-based Christian power trip. Like that, that phrase, the mighty hand of God, harkens back to the Old Testament. Uh, and in particular, biblically, it was used to talk about when God redeemed his people, when he rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. When he rescued them from building, uh, making, making uh, bricks, and at some points, bricks without straw, right? He brings them out of slavery in Egypt in the land that they were made for. In other words, what Peter's doing is reminding his hearers of God's actions in the past. And his point is this. Look, Peter's saying, look, things look jacked up to you and me. They are not right. But we aren't God. And our call is to humble ourselves. And... Look, I, I, I say that, and, and some of us are like, that's not good enough. I know. But like, this is kind of in line with the old adage that lots and lots of people want to serve God, but most want to do so in an advisory capacity. Like, we, we all think, like, the way we want to serve God is by telling him how he's supposed to do stuff. When resistance to our faith or in our life tempts us to think that God doesn't know what he is doing, Peter says, we need to remember who is God and who isn't. And if verse 6 addresses the question, does God know what he's doing? Verse 7 addresses the question, does God care? And that's the real question for most of us, isn't it? Most of us in this room, look, you're in a Presbyterian church. Some of you don't, didn't realize that when you walked in, but you are. I mean, most of us here in this room, we, we, we know that we don't have a problem with God's power. It's God's kindness that we struggle with. Does he really care? Now listen, when I mention these questions, I want to point out something. The scriptures don't chastise people for questions. I know that Christians often chastise people for questions, but the Bible doesn't. The Psalms are full of questions, full of questions like, God, are you sleeping? Things ain't right. Are you sleeping? Do you care? Do you see the pit that I'm in? 
psalmist writing questions like, I'm supposed to be king and I'm living in a cave. Things aren't right. We shouldn't be, friends, more pious than the Scriptures, right? Peter wouldn't give this call if he didn't think that if he didn't think both that Christians, and when I say that, I mean the faithful, are actually having these questions. And he certainly wouldn't give it uh, the way he does, because he answers these questions not with a voice of anger, but with compassion. Look at that. Because he says, cast your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. What he doesn't say is, you shouldn't have anxieties. Don't you understand God's hand is mighty? He doesn't say, God's disappointed in you, that you don't trust him throughout these troubles. His answer is that God cares for you. Don't forget that God cares for you. Throw your anxieties on him. And the important important point here is, is nearness. It's positional. That's what Peter's trying to get across. It's positional. You and I hit doubts. We hit troubles. We hit resistance. And the first thing we want to do is, God doesn't know what he's doing. I need to go over here. I got to take care of myself. And some of us do that through, through piety, right? We do that. We go, God's doing what he's doing. He's going to do what he's doing. I don't like it, but I can't question him because I don't want to be smitten like a bug. So I'm just going to sit over here and hole up. Some of us do it like that. Others of us, other, uh, others of us create the distance by going, well, if you're going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. Right? We have one way that looks very unrighteous and one way that looks very righteous. Both of them are wrong. And both of them Peter strikes against right here. We can relationally pull away from God because we think he's messed it all up. Or we can humble ourselves and relationally draw near to him. That is what Peter is trying to get. Cast your anxieties on him. Go to him. I know it's hard, but go to him. Ultimately, we do this remembering that we live under the mighty hand of God. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he cares for us. Okay? But we also have an enemy. Look down at verses 8 to 9. Peter says this. Be self-controlled. Stay awake, in fact. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I say that and half of us are already like chuckling internally or just completely checked out, right? Um, the, The... the, the great Christian writer in the mid-20th century, um, early to mid-20th century, C.S. Lewis, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in it, one of the things he said, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, it's written from the perspective of a, of a senior demon or devil writing to his subordinate, teaching him how to be a good devil, right? And one of the things he says is, look, when you're patient, which is what he said of this guy that he was supposed to be working with who ended up being a Christian, it was very bad news for him, but uh, you're patient. When your patient begins to think of the devil, you put a picture in his head of a little red man with horns and a funny little tail and a pitchfork. Why? Because clearly no modern person could believe in such a thing. And so clearly he will no longer believe in devils. And that's what happens with most of us, right? Because the reality is is that when we hear the word devil, we think red dude, horns, and pointy tail. And we struggle with that because how can anyone believe in such a thing? Well, here's the thing. The scriptures are pretty clear that there is an aspect of creation that is invisible to us, that we can't see. But it is very real. It is there, but we can't... Now, we're not told much about it. I know we'd like to think we're told a ton about it. We're really not. Most of what we think intuitively about those things came from the Middle Ages, not from the Bible. Okay? From pictures, from art, uh, which are wonderful creative depictions of something. But you're not going to find it here, okay, in this book. 
We do know that it exists, though, and Satan, the devil, is presented consistently in the Scriptures as the enemy or the adversary or the accuser of God's people. He is personal, and he is opposed to the things of God and God's glory. And when demons are presented in Scripture, and they are, and they are not just pre-modern ways to explain things that us enlightened scientific people already figured out. I hate to tell you this, but ancient people had a word for epilepsy, and it wasn't demon possession. It was epilepsy, I mean, in Greek, okay? But the, the point is this, that when the Bible describes demons, they are, what are they doing? They're dehumanizing people. They're dehumanizing them. I mean, think with me, the, the demoniac, um, the, the guy who had a demon from the region of the Gerasenes. Maybe some of you aren't familiar with that story. Jesus comes to this region that um, he comes across the, the Sea of Galilee and he gets off the boat. And as he gets off the boat, we're told that a man approaches him, or at least we're told that it's a man. It's certainly, you might have been confused if you saw him because he was buck naked cut up with rocks because he cut himself. His hair is all disheveled. He howled at the moon and lived among the tombs. Here's a guy who acted like an animal, lived with them, lived among the carrion, among the dead. Here's a man completely dehumanized. And that's what you see over and over and over again when demon possession is talked about, when demonic influence is talked about. It is about God's image being marred and taken away. But the first time we hear about Satan's activities isn't in the New Testament. It's right at the beginning. Because you see, the Bible tells the story that the world, as it is right now, is not the way the world was. It's not the way the world was meant to be. Things were right back then. Humanity was created to steward creation in relationship with and for God. But we were fooled into believing a lie. That, that God was not for us. That he didn't care. And that he really wasn't that powerful, that we could really be like him if we just ate a fruit. I mean, think about that. Someone came and tell you, you could be just like Bill Gates. All you had to do is eat this fruit. You'd think, Bill Gates ain't that much different from me then, is he? I mean, all I got to do is eat this, you know, this fruit. I'm, I'm there. That was the lie. We were fooled into believing that by a serpent that the scripture later identifies explicitly as Satan. And when we believed this, this lie, we acted on it and betrayed God. And that betrayal brought what all betrayals do. It brought guilt, of course. It brings guilt. You can't betray someone without that offense taking shape. And so we were guilty before God, but more, because now we, by nature, follow that lie. God doesn't care about us, and we're more than we think we are. Think with me. That's why Peter's giving this statement in the first place. Why would he need to remind us? Listen, why would he need to remind us that God is God and we aren't? Unless we still believed that, in fact, because we ate that fruit, we really are. And he's not. Why would he need to tell us that God cares for us unless we truly believe that he wasn't for us at all? We follow that lie. And we follow the teller of that lie. And that is why Peter says in verse 9, to oppose him knowing that he is doing this with everyone, not just you. Peter's point here is that the opposition that we come by, the opposition that Christians come by, has its origination in an enemy who sleeplessly seeks to swallow us whole. That's what the word devour means. It doesn't mean he's going to chew on us. It literally means he's going to find you and swallow you. Like, there's no, you don't fight someone swallowing you. It's done. Okay? Especially a lion. It gets over. 
It's, it's just like as the Apostle Paul says, the conflict that we have is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. It's with spiritual forces that are driving that flesh and blood, which is set to oppose anything that glorifies God and is actually good for us. We have an enemy. We live in the tension between the mighty hand and the roaring lion. But that's not the end of the story. Nor is the end of Peter's words. Look down at verse 10. Peter says this. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you by his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay. Now, if you checked out because of the, de- the devil stuff, I need you to check back in. This is important. Okay? Stay with me. What this can sound like, that, that kind of language that Peter gives of, of resist him, and in time God will do all these great things for you, can sound really Pollyanna-ish, right? Like, uh, th- this is kind of that, that opiate and the masses stuff, right? That we, we kind of build these whole systems of thought on the fact that all religion is supposed to be there to do is to kind of keep you complacent. <laughs> this is far from Peter's point. This is far from a message of complacency. Because, you see, God wasn't okay with our relationship with him being broken. He wasn't okay with us being alienated from him because, uh, because we had betrayed him. And so instead, he promised to make things right. And that's what Peter's getting at. When he talks about uh, calling God the God of all grace, grace does not mean that God dances well. It means, it means undeserved favor. It means he freely gives something, something that's not earned. Because nothing compelled God to make things right with us. When, when you are betrayed by someone, nothing in them compels you that, oh, I must do something for them. Uh, not at all. We betrayed him. All that we deserved from our betrayal of him was alienation. But he moved towards us. Friends, this is, this, is, this is the entire point of Christianity. This is the entire difference between Christianity and all the other world religions. Because all, all of these other world systems, whether they are philosophies or religions, will tell you, here's what you need to do to move back towards God. And, and Christianity instead says, here's how the, how the God that you've betrayed moved back towards us. And he did that through Jesus Christ. That is what Peter is alluding to here with the talk of eternal glory. That, that word eternal is important for us. We hear eternal and we think, we think timeless. But that's not what it meant. Uh, it's certainly not what it meant in the original. It doesn't mean, I mean, it can mean forever. But for those who were steeped in the Old Testament, which quite frankly was the only Bible the early Christians had, it spoke to the promises of God. Because right there, at the point of our betrayal back in the garden, God made a promise. He said, I'm going to fix things. I will make them right. And that as the Old Testament plays out, he continues to talk about and work out how he's going to make things right. And how when he does it, it would usher in a new age, a new way of being. And so as he does this, the word that we translate here as eternal literally means the age. The age, that's what he's talking about. The time in which he will come and make and set all things right. And the New Testament declares that this writing of things was done in and through Jesus. All that we lost in Adam was regained for us in Jesus. He lived the perfect life we couldn't. A fully dependent relationship with God. And he bore the guilt of our betrayal on the cross. Because in Jesus, God bore the... The, the guilt that we had earned. And, and friends, I, I know some of us are really bothered by that. That is what forgiveness is. That is what any forgiveness is. When we are betrayed, 
either the, the betrayer bears the guilt and we call it justice, or the betrayed bears the guilt and we call it forgiveness. But someone must bear it. If we are to be forgiven by God, it must be because Jesus bore our guilt, not because we can somehow make it up to him. But it didn't end there. Because Jesus also rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to bring us out of the old age that we had been in and into the age that we were made for. In Jesus, God came to rescue us so that if we place our faith in Jesus and return to the Lord, we are restored, strengthened, confirmed, and established. And that leads us to verse 11, where we talk about the kingdom that's coming. Peter says this, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, what is this? Look, in technical terms, it's called a doxology. It just means a, a kind of a, a exposition of praise. We sing a doxology in of our worship service. You'll do that in a few minutes. But this one also teaches something that Peter wants to get across. Because in the scriptures, that idea of dominion is important. Because when Jesus came on the scene, what he didn't talk about, I know some of us are confused on this and been taught differently, what he didn't talk about is putting a lifeboat together and throwing a bunch of souls in the lifeboat to get us out of this place. That's not what he talked about at all. In fact, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark are, the time has come, the age is upon us, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's about a kingdom. And that kingdom is theological shorthand. What I mean by that, it's a a short way of talking about really big ideas. Because the Old Testament prophets talk about when God would come to make things right. That time when everything would be changed. That God's righteous rule would be realized throughout the world. Not just among one people. And they, they called it his kingdom. It was a way of talking about what God was going to do to right the world. And Peter is placing the resistance that his hearers are or will face within a greater context. He's saying, look, I know you're facing trial. I know you're facing suffering. I know you're struggling. But the kingdom is God's. And he's coming to finish what he began in Jesus' resurrection. He is coming to finish the restoration of the world. And until that time, we live in that tension. We still exist in the tension between the mighty hand and the roaring lion. Between the now of our struggles and the not yet of God's full rescue. And how will we navigate it? That's what I want to turn our attention to now if I can. Okay, Let's think about how we can navigate this. First, we need to name our enemies. Now, I want you to just rub the back of your neck for a second because that just made your hair stand up. So just stay with me. There are two enemies mentioned in this passage. One explicitly and one implicitly. The implicit one is our pride and our desire for independence. The scriptures are clear, friends, that we were made for dependence on God. We are dependent on him for everything, from the breath that we take to our daily bread, to being made new, to placing our faith in him. Everything in us, though, hates that. We want independence. That is the core of what sin is. Like... Part of what it means to be a Christian is humbling ourselves before God. Part of what it means to be a Christian is admitting that we don't have a complete picture of the universe and refusing to judge God by our standards. This desire for seeking our own way is often what the New Testament calls the flesh. It is an enemy. The second enemy explicitly mentioned is, of course, the devil. Now, in Christian circles, we generally do one of two things with Satan. 
we, we either overemphasize him or ignore him. In, in our tradition, generally, we ignore him. Right? You know this. That's why some of you feel really uncomfortable. I'm even mentioning him right now, okay? Peter allows us to do neither. He is real. He is seeking to destroy you. Those are the two things we need to understand. Satan is real, and he wants you destroyed. And he wants God's kingdom overthrown. Yet at the same time, Peter says, God's hand is the one that is mighty, and we are called to resist him. Now, what does it mean to resist the devil? Most of us, when I say that, think that what we need to resist is like witchcraft or like horror movies, like killing, you know, the chainsaw-wielding guy. Like, resist the devil, okay? I guess so. All right, that, that may be part of it. But remember what I said earlier. The devil, Satan, is the one who introduced the lie. God doesn't love you, and you don't have to depend on him. In other words, wherever that lie is present, so is the liar. Where that lie is present, so is the liar. If you think, friends, that that lie is present in former Disney teen stars parading around the stage in their underwear, but is not present in a church where gossip and self-righteousness reigns, you are deceived. You are deceived. We resist the devil by believing the gospel, that we are broken and in need of God's rescue, just like everyone else. And we resist him by believing that God actually loves us and wants us restored to him in Jesus. That is how you, res- you resist the devil. You refuse to believe the lie. You refuse to lie about yourself, that you aren't that broken, that you aren't that sinful, that you aren't that needy. You refuse to lie about God, that his grace really isn't free. That his love really isn't unconditional, that he isn't that powerful, that he isn't that wise. And you refuse to lie about those around you that don't believe, that somehow that they are beyond God's grace. Or somehow more messed up than you, or that they need to clean themselves up before God can accept them. Friends, resist the devil. Proclaim the gospel and resist him. One more thing on this, though. Did you notice that Peter does not talk about those that are actually doing the persecuting of these Christians? Did you notice that? I mean, let's be honest. During that time, the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion, but so is Caesar. So why didn't Peter say, resist your persecutors? (laughs) It's the same reason, friends, that Paul says that our conflict isn't with flesh and blood. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is not because you made better choices than your neighbor. You're smarter than him or her, that somehow you got it and they didn't. It is because God invaded your life and delivered you from the lie and the liar and restored you to himself. And until that happens for others, of course they will be opposed to the things of God. Of course they will. You're going to invite people this week to Friendship Sunday, they're not going to come, and you're going to want to call your congressman. Like, stop! Of course they're opposed to the things of God. That is why we hit our knees and we pray. You cannot coerce people into God's kingdom. Peter is saying that the real enemy is not your neighbor. It is the liar. 
And that, that, friends, is why we pray, and that is why we've been gathering on Sunday evenings at my place to pray for next Sunday. Because I don't care how many people we inv- I don't care if half the city of Stanton comes into this place. Nothing's going to change unless God himself invades some lives and rescues some people the way he did to me and the way he did for you. You are free to love your enemies when you know that you would be in the same place following the same liar if it weren't for the grace of God. Okay? Now lastly, really quick, I want to speak into living into our hope because those last two verses there are pivotal, but we gloss over them. Like I said before, what Peter is saying there is not... He's talking about the fact that Jesus didn't come. Like I said, it put souls in a lifeboat. And in fact, Jesus came to bring a kingdom... That he is a king who brought a kingdom. That Christian, the, the Christian hope, friend, is about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we prayed that during the Lord's Prayer. It's not pie in the sky. That's, that's dirt. That's mud. That's getting, that, that is God's will done here as it is in heaven. It is about a kingdom. And when Jesus rose from the dead, friends, it wasn't just to show that what he said was true. <laughs> It was to usher in a new reality. Okay, what does that mean? It means that, it means for the Christian, we must resist the idea that, well, this is just the way things are in a fallen world. No. This is not the way things are in a fallen world. Jesus has risen from the dead to put the fallen world on notice. To put the power of Satan on notice. To put our own pride on notice. When, when Pat read that gospel lesson, it said, Jesus, Jesus talking about casting out demons. And he says, you can't, nobody can go do that unless the strong man's bound up. Who do you, who do you think the strong man is? It's Satan. The one who deceives the nations, the one who Jesus said, not anymore. Not anymore. It doesn't mean he's not active. It means he's not in control anymore. He's on notice. We are called to not just resist the devil in our internal lives, but also through our city as well. You want to see where the devil's active? You look to those places where, his Im- where God's image is degraded, where it is dehumanized. And we go to those places and we seek to reestablish dignity. Where injustice reigns, we seek to bring righteousness. Where self-righteousness breeds, we declare the gospel. If not, friends, we are simply showing that we think the principalities and powers still rule and they do not. Now let me conclude. The most difficult part of my morning run, I know you all were really wondering about that as we kept going here. The most difficult part about my morning run is about halfway up this hill here. Because this is like the last, I don't know, two-tenths, three-tenths of a mile at this point, right? It's like barely six o'clock in the morning. These days it's still dark outside. Your legs are heavy. Energy is low. And when that happens, my head always seems to drop. I focus on each step, and each step is a struggle. But when I'm thinking right, I lift my head, and I look at the top of the hill, because right at the top of the hill, the top of Thornrose, at the corner of Thornrose and Beverly, there's a stoplight. It's always red. Okay? Because no, one's, no sane person is awake driving the roads at that time of the morning. 
And in the morning, that red light cast itself about a quarter of the way down that hill. And I see its glow. And I look to the, to the goal so that the hill is put in its context. Yeah, it's hard, but it's almost done. I can see the light. I can see that light. It's almost over. It isn't forever, and a different reality is coming for me. Peter's doing the same thing. The struggles, the resistance that you and I face, they are real, and they are hard. And if you aren't facing any struggle, let me just invite you again. I want you to come to my house tonight, about 7.15. We're going to start praying at 7.30, and next week, (laughs) you're going to face some struggle, because the rest of us have who have been gathering there, and it's going to be rough. But here's the thing. We stand firm in faith because through Jesus, a new reality is coming, has come, and will come in its fullness. And because only through His grace, we can follow Him into it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, You are the King. Through Your life, Your death, and Your resurrection, You have brought on a new reality into the world. That everything changed on that Easter. God, you are the Father who planned and prepared all of those things. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who is active in applying them throughout the city and in our own lives. And so we ask that you would come, you would apply the gospel to us. Give us the grace to reject the lie. And so to reject the liar, to resist him. And then to be fueled both through our worship, through the the ministry of the word and the sacraments, to move into this world and resist him wherever that lie is spoken. For the sake of your name, for the sake of our good, because we are most ourselves when we do such a thing, and for the sake of our neighbors who desperately need to hear that that lie is a lie. And so we ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.